This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. I miss traveling a lot. I miss being compelled to encounter stories that are different from my own, whether it's the drama of the Scottish landscape, which is so different from where I live in Michigan, or the cosmopolitan buzz that you get from sitting in a cafe in Paris, which is so different from the buzz of the tree trimmer's chainsaw that I'm hearing outside my window, which I hope you do not hear. I also miss being forced out of my comfort zone because that's one thing travel does for us. Travel is about discovery. Hi, I'm Kelly Edwards, and this is Let's Go Together, a podcast from Travel and Leisure about the ways travel connects us and what happens when you don't let anything stop you from seeing the world. On this episode, I'll be taking a step back as Travel and Leisure's Editor-in-Chief, Jacqueline Gifford, returns to guest host. We're going behind the scenes this time as Jackie chats with Travel and Leisure's Editor-at-Large, Jeff Chu, about his coverage of TNL's Global Vision Awards, his memories of covering food and art, and his thoughts on travel after the pandemic. And now, over to you, Jackie. Hello, everyone. My name is Jackie Gifford, and I am the Editor-in-Chief of Travel and Leisure. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Let's Go Together. I want to welcome my friend, Jeff Chu. Jeff is an editor-at-large at Travel and Leisure. He was formerly a staff writer at Time Magazine, editorial director at Fast Company, and a contributing editor at Modern Farmer. He's co-host and co-curator of The Evolving Faith Gathering, author of the book, Does Jesus Really Love Me?, and the writer of the newsletter, Notes of a Make-Believe Farmer. He lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, with his husband, Tristan, and their old deaf dog, Fuzzy. Welcome, Jeff. It's so great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jackie. So, okay, editor-at-large, first things first. What made you become a reporter and a writer? Okay, so journalism is not on the approved list of professions for Chinese parents. My mom wanted me to be a lawyer, and my dad would have been happy with medicine or law or engineering, maybe investment banking. But I had an uncle who was a London-based journalist for Hong Kong media. And when I was in middle school, we did this geeky thing where we would send imaginary newspapers back and forth between London, where he lived and wrote, and Miami, where I went to middle school and high school. And he was my real-world inspiration. I've always loved stories and storytelling. And when I was a kid, I could spend hours with old copies of National Geographic because through those pages, I got to visit and experience all different kinds of lands and cultures and peoples. And I wanted to know more. I think there was another part of it that was escapism. I was a gay Chinese kid in a straight white American world. And journalism was a way that I could try to make sense of that world and understand what was going on around me. But it was also a means for me to lose myself, not in a destructive way, but in a good way, because journalism helped me believe that there was something beyond my limited self and my limited story. What made you fall in love with travel journalism in particular? 
I have loved traveling ever since I was a little kid. When I was eight, another uncle paid for my sister and me to visit Hong Kong for the first time. And we spent the entire summer there improving our Cantonese, eating the best food in the world and being with our extended family. And I remember sitting on the top of a double-decker bus. And this was a time before those double-decker buses were air-conditioned. Ooh. <laughs> it was <Yeah>. brutal. <laughs> we were climbing the steep hill from their little village where they lived, and the wind was blowing a semi-cool breeze through the open window. And I thought that this kind of exploring was the best thing. There was so much to see. And then when I got a little older, I would save every spare penny I had from my after-school jobs so that I could go other places and see new things. And when you're part of the Hong Kong diaspora, you have relatives everywhere. So that's always a free place to stay. Then after I became a journalist, I realized travel writing was a way to invite other people along for the ride. One thing I'll say about travel journalism is that it occasionally gets a bad rap because so often it does fixate on luxury hotels and on spas and on elite experiences. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think we've seen in recent years the growth of a kind of travel writing that is more a way of understanding and honoring local cultures, a way of appreciating what's already there and a way of connecting diverse people groups and seeing how different stories are interwoven together when we travel. I agree with you wholeheartedly, and we're so grateful to have your voice at TNL. You've been reporting for us for a very long time. New York City, I should also add, misses you. We met in New York City, but you actually just moved recently to Michigan before the pandemic. Talk to me about that move and finding a home in a new state. I mean, that's a form of traveling, right? The ultimate travel is moving. Sure. We miss New York, but it was time for something new. Neither my husband nor I has ever lived in the Midwest. He is from Texas. I grew up in California and Florida. Then he lived all of his adult life in New York, and I split mine between London and New York. I went to seminary a few years ago to study theology, which is, I guess, another way of trying to make sense of the world and its stories. And after that, I got a part-time job teaching here in Grand Rapids. So we decided to try it. We moved just before the pandemic hit, as you said. So we don't really have a sense of what before looked like in West Michigan. But last summer, we went hiking along Lake Michigan. We picked blueberries and raspberries and strawberries. We've gone on long, long walks through our new city. And we've really come to a deeper appreciation of West Michigan beyond the stereotypes. This has been really the year of Americans rediscovering America. You recently reported a story for us on wine culture in Michigan. Many people don't realize how good and innovative the cool climate wines are from that state. I'm not going to lie. When I first went up to Traverse City, I didn't have high expectations. And then we started tasting the wine and there was this series of light bulb moments like, this is really, really good. And I think every wine region is going to have its dreck. Every wine region is going to have those bottles that you never want to taste again. But every wine region is also going to have some really good stuff. And you can't let the worst define a whole region. And what I learned in my reporting is that there's a not insignificant cohort of winemakers who are digging into their soil, exploring what's unique about this climate, and producing wines that honor rather than run away from that. So 
back in the day, they were trying to pretend to be California, but this isn't California. Instead of chasing that big, jammy, plummy fruit, they're honoring the tautness and the tightness and the acidity. And it's beautiful, especially if you like dry wines. Jeff, you recently reported our second annual Global Vision Awards for us. So these are awards given out to travel providers, companies, and individuals who are doing good work in terms of sustainability, diversity, and equity. I think we're all realizing that at this moment in time, we need to be thinking more critically as consumers about the health of the planet and its people. That's why we do Global Vision. What stood out to you the most this year in terms of the winners? I am so glad I get to work on this project because it's really invigorating. One of the themes that emerged in this year's package was reimagining travel as something that doesn't exploit places or people, but actually as something that regenerates and improves and encourages and enriches both places and humanity in the process. So you have efforts like those instigated by Visit Faroe Islands, which had an initiative pre-pandemic called Closed for Maintenance, which gave the islands an opportunity to spotlight the beauty of their landscape, but also to draw attention to the need to travel responsibly. You have Regenerative Resorts, which was on the cover of the print edition. And these are luxury resorts that are committed to, yes, a very comfortable and plush travel experience, but also as a way not just of conserving the environment, but actually improving it through things like permaculture, through contributing to local communities, through restoring the natural environment. Then you have organizations like Planet Abled, which is a wonderful company in India that asks a big question, how can we make travel more accessible? Which is something that doesn't just help disabled travelers, but actually can improve everyone's experience. Talking to Niha Arora, who founded Planet Abled, made me think more broadly about hospitality and how we make people feel welcome and included, which is something we can all get better at all the time. She does such interesting things in her work from training drivers and hotel concierges to understanding the needs and desires of disabled travelers, which means she does things like creating 3D models of landmarks so that blind travelers can experience them in a tactile way. We had actually Neil Jacobs, the CEO of Six Senses Hotels, Resorts, and Spas on for Let's Go Together, and they were another winner in Global Vision. And I think they've done incredible work in terms of giving back to the local communities where their hotels are to make sure that the community feels included in the whole process, right? And so it's not just about going to a place and flying somewhere anymore and sitting on a beach chair and not really understanding why you're there. I think people really do want to feel organically connected to a place and walk away with a richer experience. Do you think that the pandemic has really changed travelers' mindsets? Do you think that this is the moment when we move forward? I hope there are some incremental steps of progress. One of the things that Sixth Senses did is it approached its improvement with intention. A portion of every stay, the revenue from every stay, is devoted to something good in that local community. It goes into a separate fund that is expressly to be used for the environment or for education or for something that will benefit humanity. 
we need to be approaching things with that kind of intentionality. Americans like to talk a lot about independence, but the pandemic has really compelled me and I think a lot of us to think more about interdependence because we do depend on one another. Travelers, for instance, depend on the people who laid the pavement for the roads, the engineers and the factory workers who built our airplanes, the oil industry workers who pumped the oil and produced the jet fuel, the cleaners and the air traffic controllers and the gate agents and the baggage handlers who make an airport run the taxi drivers and the maintenance workers and on and on and on. And we also depend on the natural environment. We take water and clean air for granted, but we shouldn't. So the folks in those industries and in those places, in some sense, depend on us as consumers too. And we depend on them to do their jobs well. And we are all knit together by travel, even if we don't always recognize it. What else do you feel has the pandemic laid bare for you about this industry and about the work that you do? Beyond the fact that we're all interconnected, personally, I think that it laid bare for me how much I was taking my travel for granted, how easy it was before. I miss traveling a lot. I miss being compelled to encounter stories that are different from my own, whether it's the drama of the Scottish landscape, which is so different from where I live in Michigan, or the cosmopolitan buzz that you get from sitting in a cafe in Paris, which is so different from the buzz of the tree trimmer's chainsaw that I'm hearing outside my window, which I hope you do not hear. <laughs> I also miss being forced out of my comfort zone because that's one thing travel does for us. Travel is about discovery. So I hope that when I can hit the road again, I will do so with a greater appreciation of curiosity, which I think really is deeply interwoven with the tolerance and the empathy that we want to have as part of travel. And I, I think I'll also do it with a deeper appreciation for the many reasons that we travel. For some of us, travel is about different kinds of pleasure. But for some of us, it's also a spiritual pursuit because pilgrimage is one of the most ancient and underappreciated forms of travel, which means going on a journey in search of something that nourishes our souls. For some of us, I think travel is about reconnecting with nature or with culture. For some of us, it's a way to learn and to have our sense of the world broadened. And for many of us, it's a combination of these things. So I think the pandemic has helped me to appreciate and to acknowledge that travel does have these multiple dimensions. And it's really urged me to think more carefully about why I travel. One thing I keep coming back to is that need for more tolerance and empathy, something that can really only grow if you read stories from a variety of perspectives. I do feel that this year and where we need to go as a society, as a global society, is to be more empathetic, right? For sure. And empathy means not just understanding what folks are thinking and feeling who might be different from us in this very moment, but also looking at those layers of story and those layers of history. Every place and everything contains layers of story piled one on top of another like sediment. So let me bring another example from our Global Vision Awards. The Tehachapi Heritage Grain Project is this small group of farmers who grow heirloom grains that tell stories. So they grow Sonora wheat, for instance, which is a variety that was brought to North America by a Spanish missionary when Mexico was still a colony. And then it traveled up the California coast as the missions expanded northward. 
This story is one of sustenance and resilience and travel, but it's also a story about tragedy and pain and colonization, and that's just the human reality. There's also a story about the land, the land in California, because the farmers behind the grain project are thinking about the scarcity of water in California and the ways in which industrial agriculture has harmed that land. And they're asking an important question. Can we use these ancient grains to enrich the soil and to improve the environment? And they're inviting us as consumers into that story because there's the culinary story. Can we, by buying their flour or the tortillas that are produced from the Oaxacan green corn, can we participate in helping to enrich that soil? These grains are being used to create so much beauty. The noodle maker, Sunoko Sakai, is making noodles from them. And artisanal bakers are making these beautiful cakes that you can see on the Grain Project's Instagram. Biscuits and pastries and pasta and pizza dough, thanks to bakers and chefs all across the LA area. All of that because a couple of farmers started to ask some good questions and started to dig into those layers of story. Compare how you were traveling 10 years ago versus today. What level of intention are you bringing to your travel? And is that something that just comes with age and experience? Or is the younger generation just approaching everything all differently? I don't want to flatter myself and say that I'm such a more enlightened person now than I was 10 years ago, but I think I'm always learning. That is inherent to travel writing, keeping your eyes open and keeping your ears open and keeping your heart open really to different kinds of stories. I do think younger travelers now have grown up in a world that is more accessible, largely because of the internet. I still have on my bookshelf all those guidebooks that many of us used to buy, and honestly, that I still hope folks buy, support guidebook writers. But now so much is at our fingertips through the internet, and we can travel through the internet. There are so many places that are open to us, even if we can't afford a plane ticket, even if we don't have the time to take a physical trip we can take a virtual trip. So I don't want anyone to think that travel is off limits just because we have particular constraints of time or resources. We're taking a quick break, but when we come back, Jeff shares his fondest travel experiences with food and art, as well as his top destinations to travel to after the pandemic. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Let's Go Together from Travel and Leisure. We return to guest host Jacqueline Gifford and her conversation with travel writer Jeb Chu. You reported on Hong Kong for us many years ago in 2014. Actually, that was the first story we ever worked on together. And you mentioned earlier you had family there. And what is it like to read that, that story now? 
I was so grateful that that was the first story we did together because it allowed me to revisit and see through new eyes, a place that is very special to me and to my family. I got to show a side of Hong Kong that is largely away from the places tourists usually go, away from the beautiful lights on Victoria Harbor, away from the sweeping view from the peak, which most visitors experience. Hong Kong, as most of you know, has gone through a tremendous amount of change over the past few years, and a lot of that has been hard. From my perspective as someone with family in Hong Kong, a lot of that change has not been good. That story saw Hong Kong largely through the lens of the pro-democracy activists. And the activists that I met on that trip, some of them are now in jail. Some of them are now in exile. There was so much hope in that story, and I fear that much of that hope has been extinguished. At the same time, I'm also reminded as I reflect on that story that Hong Kong is gritty and it is scrappy and it finds a way to survive. So I am definitely not ready to give up on Hong Kong yet. Other TNL stories have taken you to Singapore, Leipzig, Oakland, Malaysia. What sticks out the most for you from some of those trips? The Malaysia trip, I think, was the last big one, right? Before the pandemic, that food story was incredible. I am not going to lie. I'm always thinking about food. I am always, always, always thinking about food. <laughs> As am I. I read that story and I just literally, I mean, you are such a great food writer. And food writing is hard, by the way. I should add and clarify for people because you have to get so many things right. The ingredients, the sourcing, the flavors. I find food writing a challenge personally. It's very difficult to describe flavor. In Malaysia, I got to learn to cook a dish called the devil's curry, which like its name suggests, is very spicy. It comes from this tiny community called the Kristang, who are mixed race people with both European and Malay roots. There are just a few thousand people left who identify as Kristang. But this dish, which has spread far beyond the Kristang community, tells just a little bit of their story. I also remember there was this ridiculous meal in Leipzig at a Michelin-starred restaurant called Falco. And I dined that night with an art gallerist named Tobias Nering, who, before he got into art, he actually studied theology. So that was a super fun night for me, even though on reflection, I can't remember a ton of it because we drank so much wine. <laughs> Sounds like a good travel and leisure meal. <laughs> a good reporting adventure. I remember in Oakland, I got to take my husband along for a little bit of the reporting. And traveling is always better when you get to experience it with someone you love, right? And one of our favorite spots was in a food hall on the edge of Chinatown. It's an order at the counter place called Kosecha where the chef, whose name is Dominica Rice Cisneros, she used to cook at Chez Panisse, but now she was doing her take on Mexican food, and I cannot wait to eat her food again. But I don't want folks to think that I only eat when I travel. Like, there's a lot more. <laughs> you have hours to fill between meals, right? So I wanted to mention one other moment that was a real treasure, and that was also in Leipzig, which is famous for being the city where Bach wrote some of his greatest compositions. For many years, Bach was the choir master and music director at the Thomas Kirche, the St. Thomas's church. And every Saturday, the St. Thomas Boys Choir 
and the Gewandhaus Orchestra, which is one of the best in the world, they participate in a worship service. And I specifically say worship service. I don't want to scare anyone off, but I specifically say worship service because I got reprimanded by an usher when I called it a concert. Anyway, anyone can attend. It costs two euros, but the two euros is actually to pay for the program. It's not for the entrance. And every week, the boys' choir and the orchestra feature the music that Bach wrote for church for that week. You get to hear the music in the space and the setting that it was originally intended for. The afternoon I went, looking around this old Gothic church with light streaming in through the windows as the musicians sang and played, I saw all manner of humanity from all over the world, young people and old people. Tears were streaming down their faces. There was this elderly couple I'll never forget who just sat there holding hands. A young hipster's head rested on her boyfriend's shoulder. Their eyes were closed. I will never forget that scene. It just struck me that all these different people's stories converge in this one space, all brought together by one man's art that he created centuries ago. I grew up as your stereotypical Chinese orchestra dork. So to be able to experience Bach's music in that way really was one of the most special travel moments of my life. And also for two euros, one of the best bargains in the universe. I was actually going to bring up that memory because I was your editor at the time. And I remember editing that story and thinking, oh, my gosh, to be able to hear Bach's music and see all of humanity in the 21st century, listening to music that was centuries old, hundreds of years old, it must have been incredible. I think what's brilliant about your writing too, you cover food, you can write beautifully about music, but also arts. And so when you traveled to Singapore for us to write about arts and culture, you did so really looking at how Singapore had gone into this transitional moment where they were really promoting contemporary art. And I think the arts, for me personally, it's been laid bare by the pandemic how important they are. We always knew fundamentally how important they are, but our museums, our theaters, our musicians, our concert venues, we all want them to come back. So when you travel and go to artistic venues, what does that do to you as a traveler? It reminds me that beauty matters and that beauty comes in so many different forms. I think one of the keys to appreciating that beauty and one of the things that Singapore learned that I reported on was that it doesn't just come in the old shapes and molds. Singapore's investment in contemporary art was in some ways countercultural. They really had to do a lot of internal work. And it's funny to talk about a government, for instance, doing internal work, but they've invested in that work, not just money, but also soul in exploring what a Singaporean form of beauty can look like in the 21st century. I think that's what the arts are for. They help us understand the world. They help us make sense of what's going on around us. Artists invest their days and their nights in that kind of processing and commentary. And even when a painting is abstract, there's usually a story, a personal story, a political story, a cultural story that inspired that abstraction. So I think that's what the arts are for. They help us make sense of things and they help us to feel. Top three destinations you want to visit when this is all over. 
Oh, top three. It's hard. So my husband and I have allowed ourselves to start dreaming now that we're both vaccinated about what we might do. And I do think one of the most invigorating parts of travel is the dreaming process, that stage where you get to imagine, oh, yeah. what are we going to do? What are we going to eat? Where are we going to visit? Also, I will have another confession. We're not the most spontaneous people. We love the planning and we also block out time for what we call planned spontaneity, where we just wander a city and let ourselves get lost. So we've spent a lot of time during the pandemic reminiscing about past adventures and dreaming about where we might go next. We love to hike. My husband studied in the UK and I lived there for a few years. So we've been thinking about doing a few days in London, which we love and where we got engaged and then heading west to visit friends in Wales, where we've never been before. We've done hiking trips in England and Scotland, but we feel like we shouldn't exclude Wales, which I've heard is absolutely gorgeous. We've also talked about going to Patagonia. That's always been a dream, maybe to start in Buenos Aires and kind of fatten ourselves up on steak and wine and then go on a hiking trip in Patagonia. And then we were just talking to a friend last night by Zoom, as we do, and she was telling us that she and her boyfriend were planning their first big trip to go see penguins in Antarctica. And so that got me dreaming about what that might be like to go see the penguins, because I'd love to do that. I agree wholeheartedly. I really, really want to go to Antarctica. I want to see some penguins, number one. <laughs> number two, you realize how fragile this all is. But I want to go to a place like Antarctica fully knowing and understanding how tourism can help and also hurt. And this is, I think, the moment where we're as we look to come out of this and the role that travel and leisure is going to play and every trip has to matter. There has been this slowing down, I believe. And so I'm looking to take fewer trips, but have them be longer trips. I don't know if you've thought about that yourself. I don't know if I want to get on a plane every week like I was doing before because I had to for work and other things, but I'd like to actually spend a good amount of time in a new place, right? It's funny. I feel a little bit like I've lost the ability or the desire to do those quick trips like I used to. I used to hop on a plane at a moment's notice, plan out on my way to the airport, here's what I, my itinerary is for the next two days. And it just seems exhausting. Yeah. The idea that you could go somewhere and have time, have time to stumble on that restaurant that isn't in any of the tour guides and hasn't hit the internet that you can have time to see how the weather changes at a remote lodge so that you hike the same path a couple of times and notice, oh, the flowers are blooming here, but not there. Oh, two days later, this is what pops up along that route when the light looks a little different. That seems a lot more appealing to me now, a slower pace, but one that allows us to take in more of the surroundings. On that note, I encourage you all to slow down a little bit and read Jeff Chu's beautiful writing in the pages of Travel and Leisure. Jeff Chu, editor-at-large, thank you so much for chatting with me today, and I cannot wait until we meet in person again. Thanks, Jackie. This was a delight. That's all for this episode of Let's Go Together, a podcast by Travel and Leisure. 
I'm Kelly Edwards. Your guest host for this episode was Jacqueline Gifford, Editor-in-Chief of Travel and Leisure. And our guest today was Jeff Chu, Editor-at-Large for Travel and Leisure. Follow Jacqueline on Twitter at Jackie Giff and follow Jeff at Jeff Chu. Be sure to follow Let's Go Together on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show, we'd really love it if you could leave us a rating and review. Join us again next week when we'll be talking to Brian McIntosh, better known as Where in the World is B, about traveling to remote destinations. Thanks to our production team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Danielle Roth, Lena Beck-Sillison, and Marvin Yu. This show was recorded in Los Angeles, edited in New York City, and can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks also to the team at Travel and Leisure, Deanne Kurzerski, Nina Ruggiero, and Tanner Saunders. You can find out more at travelandleisure.com slash podcast. You can find Travel and Leisure on Instagram at Travel and Leisure, on Twitter at Travel Leisure, on TikTok at Travel and Leisure Mag, and you can find me at Kelly Set Go. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week for more from Let's Go Together.